Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. Because they were a little bit older when I came along, but like all my siblings, you know, they they were part of a, a party culture. They were part of the drinking culture. I still have family to this day that have a lot of children out of wedlock. I mean, it's just, it's a common normal. That was me growing up. And my parent, my, my family's parenting style, because they came along a little bit later, just for a point of reference, the next youngest child is my sister, and she's 15 years older than I am. So there's this big gap of my parents, and then, boop, hey, welcome to the world. So here I am, you know, growing up. So my parents, they've already been through three kids, raising them in the 60s and the 70s. I mean, okay, Todd comes along in the 1980s. What could possibly go wrong, right? Just do your thing, stay out of trouble, and don't get picked up by the police was basically the rule of the house. So, you know, when I turned like 13, 14, I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, all this freedom, you know, like, yeah. And then I got saved. <laughs> so all that freedom to go do whatever, just stay out of trouble, didn't really happen. So this is my normal. Now, growing up as an early teen, I realized that there was a spiritual void. Um, and later on, I found out that this is very common among preteens from 11 to 14, that they, they start getting interested in defining the meaning of life. They get interested in exploring the supernatural. That's why a lot of ghost stories are catered around that age group, because there's this heightened interest uh, in that coming of age era. And I was part of that. And so I tried to find, like, like fill the spiritual void, first with um, my study of martial arts. Now, being from the family we were at, we couldn't really afford taking martial arts classes, so I would get books and learn. And actually, one of my birthday gifts was an 80-pound punching bag that we would hang up outside, and I would just beat the tar out of that thing every day for hours. Side note, tried to go back and do that in college at, at one of the recreation centers and couldn't last five minutes. So I realized like how far <laughs> out of shape I was. I was pretty fit back then. Um, and then what we, me and my buddies would do, since we were all in this together, is that we would go on Wednesday nights to the local dojo because they had open sparring is what they called it. So anybody could walk in off the street, put on a pair of gloves, and do sparring. And we'd go in and beat up all the students. <laughs> and then we'd leave. You know? And so it was, it was fun. It was fun. Uh, but then I, I realized that, that that didn't really fill all that void. And so I started moving into like Eastern-style meditation. You know? And still, I'm learning all this from books. I'm not learning this from like some guru that's teaching me. So I would learn about and practice meditation. I could still remember, like, dressed up in my, my outfit in my brother's garage, because they were out partying, and just on a mat, meditating for hours on end. Just crazy, crazy for a 13-year-old, you know? Still not really finding fulfillment. So then I got introduced to uh, witchcraft books and learning how to get into magic, how to cast spells. There was a time where I was able to you know, like use a wand and summon the wind and it would actually pick up, you know? And I'm like, whoa. Now, side note, you know, 13 years old, you don't understand the scope of things, right? And so there was a point where 
I thought that I had accidentally caused Hurricane Katrina, or not Katrina, but like Andrew, the one way back then in the 1990s. Then I realized, no, like, I'm not that good, right? <laughs> but the wind would pick up. Uh, and I had other experiences with that, you know, because once you open that door, you see other experiences happening. And there, there was a time where I was just innocuously playing a video game, and I had my, my friends on, on, the, on our bed, you know, the TV right here playing. And I have this little cabinet up above it. And I have my dresser on the other side of the room with a mirror and a, and a stereo. So I'm playing this video game. And then all of a sudden, this old butter knife that was sitting on there just shoots across the room through all of us, hits the mirror on the other side. We look back, it hovers there for a second, and then falls onto the stereo with a loud clash. That freaked us out. We, were, we didn't want to go back into that room. We stayed outside on, on the back porch till like 2 in the morning because we didn't want to go back in there. You know, so eventually my mom was like, you guys need to go in and go to bed. No, no, that knife shot across. Go to bed. So we were petrified going back into that room. Fortunately, nothing else happened that night. So then I realized, okay, this stuff is real. So I need to get rid of this magic book. And so what's the best way to get rid of it so nobody else gets it? Let's burn it. So I decided I'm going to go out in the backyard behind the shed and get this metal bowl. I'm going to burn, tear the, tear the book up, tear the pages up, burn the book, and then bury the ashes. That was, that was the idea. So I tore up all the pages, put it in there, put the match to it, went up in flames. You know, all the ashes, you know, that turned dark gray like you do with, you see with paper. And then the pages turned white again, and I could see the words on the, the ripped up pages again. So that freaked me out a little bit more. So I buried the pages um, in the backyard. So that was, okay, I'm done. Done with the witchcraft. Just, I've seen some stuff. Uh, not going back to it. So trying to fill this void, right? So this is all this, this first stage uh, in, in my life. And then comes this next stage, which is called the call to adventure. That's typically what it's called. And what this is, is that transition from the ordinary world into the special world, into the world of the unknown. You could say that kind of started with the, the foray into uh, magic and witchcraft and the meditation. This is all an unknown category for me. The call happens, and what we often do is we resist that change until we're ultimately forced to make a critical decision to embark into this new unknown area or to stay locked forever in the ordinary. So for me, this call to adventure came in 1994 because I was so interested in trying to fill a spiritual void. The Lord used that to get me into a church service because I'm interested, right? I don't know what's going on. So I go to this church, this little small Pentecostal church for you know a couple of weeks and I just... The guy preaching, he's, he, he wasn't like a pastor in the sense that you would think of a pastor. He's more of an evangelist who they basically had such a following that they turned him into a pastor, pretty much. So he was this evangelist. So like every service, altar call, altar call, altar call. If you guys are newer to the faith and you're not familiar with altar calls, they, they used to have these little small tables about this high on either end of the pulpit. So basically, it was just high enough that, that you could put your elbows on it when you knelt down to pray. And that was what they called the altar. And they would do altar calls 
for prayer for anything like healing, prayer for uh, touch from the Lord, prayer for encouragement, prayers for salvation. So I, I'm going to the service and I keep hearing this, this strange phrase, you have to be born again to get into heaven. And I'm like, okay, well, what is that, right? So one day the, the preacher is taking me to church because he would come and pick me up. And I asked him, what does it mean to be born again? And he explained the gospel to me. You know, for me, I'm a bit of a thinker, so I'm like, okay, take that information back and process it in my mind. And then eventually, in July, I know that, 1994, this altar call comes around at the end of the service. And, and I'm sitting, you know, probably towards the back of, of the church, you know, but there was a, you know, bigger, bigger than this room, and they had like tons of rows of pews. I was sitting in the back, and as this altar call's happening, you know, and they're doing like rounds. Like they'll do an altar call round, have a little bit of commentary, do another altar call round, have some commentary. That's just the, what they did. Um, if you've been to a southern church, you kind of know. And so they're going through these rounds, and this little voice in my head is saying, You need to go down there. And there's a part of me that's saying, No, I am not going down there. I don't know anything about this. I'm not going down there. Well, that happens again. Go down. No. You need to go down there. I know, but I'm not going. Go down there. Okay, no. So finally, this little voice wins out. And I start heading towards the altar. And then there's this contrary voice in my head going, Stop! What do you think you're doing? You don't know what you're doing. You're going to make a fool of yourself because you have no idea what you're doing. And in my mind, I'm having this conversation, right? I'm like, okay, you're right. I don't know what I'm doing. So when I get to, like, like the, the next three rows up, I'll just slide right into the pew and sit down because I don't know what I'm doing. So I was convinced I was going to do that. And when I got there, I, I went to go in and I couldn't. And then it felt like I was on this conveyor belt being pulled down to this altar. So here I'm at the altar. Don't know what I'm, don't have a clue what's going on. So I'm just down there on my knees because that's what else everybody else do. So that's what I did on my knees. And the assistant pastor comes over. He goes, what do you need prayer for? I don't know. I just know that I need to be here. That's, that's all there was to it. I just know that I need to be here. He goes, well, have you given your life to the Lord? No. Or, or are you saved is probably the term that he used. Are you saved? No. Would you like to be? Okay. I mean, it was pretty nonchalant. It wasn't like this compelled to give my life to the Lord because I didn't know what I was doing. It was completely... Like, almost something like spiritually happening on autopilot that I was not fully cognizant aware of, right? So I'm sitting there, and he leads me through, you know, what we would call the sinner's prayer, asking for salvation. And I got up, and I said, okay, you've been saved. Okay. You know, go home, and, you know, people tell my folks, hey, Todd got saved. Oh, that's good. You know, because there was a respect for people coming to faith. It just wasn't ingrained in the, pra in, in, in the practice, right? So, okay, Todd got saved. Yay. Two weeks later, I got baptized. Um, somewhere at my house, I've got the certificate. I was baptized on July 31st, 1994. So a long time ago, right? So we're almost pushing 30 years on that, I think, maybe even more. <laughs> you can correct my math later. <laughs> so I gave my, my life to the Lord. Now, for the next year or so, this is from age of 14 to 15. You know, this is a, this is a, a church where... Like, they're all blue-collar workers. Like, nobody's been to seminary. Nobody's had a polished education. They're all people that just got saved, and God said, hey, 
go preach the gospel. That's basically what this was. So when I get saved, I'm like, well, what do I do now? And they just say, read your Bible. So I do. I read my Bible. By the time I'd finished high school, I think I've read through it six or seven times. Because that's what I did. That's what I said to do. So I read my Bible. And so I got a pretty good foundation of what the scripture said, which is pretty nice. And the Lord uses that later on. But I began to find out that this Pentecostal church has more to offer than just a prayer of salvation. So you learn about the speaking in tongues culture, and you learn about the prophecy culture, and you learn about all the spiritual gifts culture. So as I answered this call to adventure and to this walk with the Lord, there's more than just the salvation experience. And I see these other people have more, and I want more. So I'm trying to get the more, right? And, and in the Pentecostal arena, that is viewed, like the view that, that you have gotten the fullness is by speaking in tongues. Like that's the culture in the Pentecostal arena. So you got to speak in tongues. And so that's, that's what they want, speak in tongues. I'm like, okay, I want to speak in tongues. I want the baptism of the Holy Spirit because that's what we call it. So they pray for me and they pray for I mean like week after week after week. And there's nothing. There's no, I mean, like, I've, I've got, I go down, you know, um, what they call being slain in the Spirit, which I'm still trying to find a biblical reference for that, but slain in the Spirit, and nothing. And then, you know, I think, I think it was 95 in January, they had this traveling evangelist, you know, they have this scheduled revival, which I, now I think this is, like, revival supposed to be spontaneous kind of a thing. But they would have these scheduled revivals, like, revival starts June 13th, ends question mark. It's like, we're going to start it, and then God's going to finish it kind of thing. It's just part of the culture. So every week, I mean, basically, it's what it basically is, is it's a church service every evening for like two weeks. That's, that's what they would call a revival. I have a special speaker come in. So they're coming in, they're preaching, and I, I go up, and I go up for prayer, and, you know, I got my hands up, and I go down. And what they called speaking in tongues to me felt like mumbling. That was more like, I, I mean, that's what it felt like coming out of me, right? It's just like potatoes in my mouth. But they believed they were speaking in tongues, so they put the microphone to me so everybody could hear it. And then now I'm speaking in tongues. So, okay, all right, baptism of the Holy Spirit. It got a lot better. I'll tell you, it got a lot better. So this was, this was my conversion experience. And as I look back on it, I... I totally clueless about this back then, but now that I look back on it, because I started having interactions with the supernatural, like with the witchcraft, opening up doors, you know, the, the knife instance, that was one, one instance, there were some other things, but now I realize that to have that level of experience in the unholy supernatural, it was going to take a body of believers walking in the holy supernatural for it to stick for me. It couldn't just be what they would call the cessationist experience, right? So you got the churches that don't believe in the gifts because I'd already experienced the supernatural. It wasn't a cultural thing that I grew up in church. Like this was, this was all going on in the supernatural arena. And so it was going to take something on par with what I'd already experienced to really get me into the faith. And that's what it took. It was this powerful pull of the Holy Spirit and then seeing these gifts in practice to say, okay, there's something to this. 
other than just an intellectual agreement. So that's my call to adventure. Uh, adventure. Now I had gotten that and started defining like my habits, integrating my faith, reading through the scriptures. And then we come into the next stage, and that is crossing the first threshold, is what they call it. This is the point of no return. This is the first threshold of a major decision. Now, now for me, like it's easy to think, okay, my, my salvation experience was the first major decision. But now that I look back on it, I don't think like that was the threshold because in the way that I view salvation, nothing can separate us from God's love from external forces. There's no external force that can separate that. But we can separate ourselves through neglect. So that's where I stand with the salvation thing. Uh, and so this call to adventure was me stepping forward saying yes. And then there was this later experience with a threshold. And that threshold being this. In that process of coming to the faith in the Lord, there was the realization that my mother had been diagnosed with stomach cancer. And that was, that was jarring for the whole family. Um, like I remember, I mean, this was, all, I couldn't tell you like the dates of how all this breaks down, but in that process, like I remember the day coming out of my bedroom and most of my family's in the living room, all somber, and my dad says, Todd, your mom has cancer. And I didn't know how to process it. All I knew was I didn't want to be around anybody, so I went out in the backyard and just, like, I would punch things, you know, because this is what I did. I punched things. And I remember we had this lawn chair, one of those plastic lawn chairs. And I went over and I just kicked the leg and snapped the leg right off of the thing and knocked it across the, the, the yard and just broke down and cried. It was like, oh, man, didn't know how to process it. And so that begins this... This is, the, this is all 1994. This begins a year-long experience of seeing my mom gradually go downhill until July of, two, of 19, or 1995. Man, these dates. 1995, where I'm in a church service, and in the middle of the service, some people like call me out, take me to, in the car, take me to the hospital, and led to the hospital room where my mom is gasping for breath because the cancer had gotten into her lungs and she couldn't breathe, it was filling up with liquid. And so for the next four or five hours, it was just our family there around the bed. And it was, it was a tough experience. And in that process, like at some point, some of the people left to go get cleaned up, to go get some food. And I was at the bedside and I was the one that unofficially said, she's not breathing. So at 15, I was the one, like in a non-medical sense, who declared my mother dead. And we had to work through the funeral arrangements. We had to work through, you know, uh, the burial plots and things like that. And not, I mean, like, at, at that point, my mom was 88 pounds. Like, she was just emaciated. And so we decided it would be better to do a closed casket funeral. 
and not do the open casket. And so what we ended up doing, we didn't even use the funeral home. We just used their embalming services and burial services. We just did graveside rites. And because it was just so low key, so low budget, like it was actually the, the funeral director, one of his guys, my dad and me, carrying the coffin to the grave. So we didn't have a team of pallbearers. It was just us. We got it set. People came. We had the graveside rights. And we spent the next year just processing what had happened. <clears throat> so at this point, this is what I call the threshold where I had to make a, a decision that would determine the trajectory of my life from that point on. I had the option to blame God and turn away from him or hold on. And I chose to hold on. And I'll tell you why. I believe that God could have healed my mom and I believed he could have raised her from the dead. And he could have done a billion other things. And I don't know why he didn't. I'll never know why he didn't. All the theology in the world can't answer that question. But I do know that what I did have from him through all of this was far more than what the martial arts could offer, than what the meditations could offer from what the magic could offer. There was nothing left for me to hold on to except God. And so I held on to that rope, everything that I had. And so that is my first threshold. Making that point of no return that I told the Lord, like I, I don't have anything there's nothing to fall back on. But I'm going to hold on to you with all that I've got. That was my prayer. And that's what I held on to. At 15 years old, I had to make that decision. And that was the decision I made. And the rest of my family, they tried to go back to their normal. They reverted back to the way that uh, they tried to live, you know, before all of this happened. And... I ended up being different, being in a different place, making a different decision, changing the trajectory of my life. And that leads us into the next stage. And those are the trials and the friends and the foes on our journey. That once you make the decision to cross that threshold, journeying into the unknown. I mean, like, there's a lot of unknowns in my life. First one to really come to faith in the family. First one to graduate from college. First one to go on to seminary. First one to become a preacher. The first one to really move away and do something different than what I had known. Like there's a lot of firsts in my family that I have trailblazed. And so, yes, there, there are and there were many, many obstacles in that process. 
whenever you make this decision, whenever you cross this threshold, you'll find people that'll try to stop you along your quest, that will try to be a barrier to you fulfilling your call in God's life. You can call them dream stoppers if you want. You can call them mission stoppers, um, adventure killers. They're often cleverly masked as friends and family that appear to have positive intentions, but they hinder your development. And so that's where it takes real discernment to know what the Lord's calling you to and those that are hearing the voice of the Lord and those that are operating out of the natural. <clears throat> the ability to identify those barriers, those obstructions, will help you to align with supporters along your adventure that's critical for your mission's success. Now for us, our mission is to do the work of the kingdom, is to enhance our relationship with the living God and to, as Byron says, take orders from headquarters. Anything that hinders that mission, we need to get away from. Anything that helps that mission, we let alongside with us. And because few people complete their journey to this level of maturity, I've been in a lot of churches. I've seen a lot of people. And there are a lot of people that have been in church for 30 years who are basically two-year-old Christians because they stop the maturing process. Um, so even, even people in church can stop you from your mission if you, if you don't listen to the voice of the Lord properly. And a lot of those people will unconsciously attempt to sabotage your progress because the choices they've made have sabotaged their own progress. And they will do it unwittingly. And so some examples of attempted sabotaging of my progress. <clears throat> it's 17, so this is a couple of years after my mom had passed away. It's just me and my dad living uh, in the house. I decided it was time for me to go on my first fast. And I'm an all-in kind of guy when I get into something. So I just decided, you know what? 23 days. I'm going to go on a fast for 23 days with juice and water. Uh, never done it before, but hey, going to do it. My dad thought I was like Gandhi going on a hunger strike or something. <laughs> like he was freaking out. I mean, like two days into it, he's like, Todd, whatever point you've set out to make, you've made it. He didn't even know what I was doing, right? He had no framework, right? He was trying to stop me from making the spiritual progress because he didn't understand the concept of fasting, right? We're not religious. Like, why would you go without food? That doesn't make sense. You're starving yourself. So I had to, had to go through that, like deal with my dad's like protesting me on a fast for three weeks, 23 days. And so, but that, that first fast opened up a sense in me of God's presence that was more powerful than I'd ever experienced. It was more powerful than coming to faith for the first time, speaking in tongues for the first time. It was almost like Spiritually, there was this, this clarity. I can almost say like the grass looked a little bit greener, right? Because you're just more spiritually enhanced. It doesn't happen all the time. I've had other fasts where I felt absolutely nothing, and that's fine. But that first one was a huge experience for me. Um, and then from that point, for a handful of years, like I, I did like a, a, what I would call an extreme consecrated life. Like I cut out all secular music, quit watching R-rated movies, and I, I limited a lot of my non-Christian interactions. 
Like I, I, I took a period of my life that was like really, really, really concentrated and consecrated, sorry, consecrated. And a lot of my unbelieving friends, I like to say, dropped me like a hot potato. Because like, faith, nothing to do with that. You know, we're done, we're out. And the ones that did stick around, a lot of times they would criticize the decisions I'd make. You know, like, I don't want to go watch that movie. I, I just, I don't think it's in line with my faith. I don't want to go watch that movie because it's not in line with your faith. But what is your faith? You know, it's, you just, you, you get that railing. And uh, another, another one of these obstacles, due to my ignorance in this, I had another friend that got saved right out along uh, the same time. And we were in my bedroom, and I had a, a painting of the Last Supper on the wall. And uh, we were sitting there, and we had this debate, this theoretical debate, as to, like, so we know the Scripture says that not everybody will go to heaven because most people are not going to take this path. But in theory, is it possible for everybody to take the path? Right? That was the debate. And he's saying, no, no, it says that they all won't. So in theory, they cannot. And I was like, well, in theory, they all get the call. In theory, they could potentially all accept the call. That was the debate. Well, we're going back and forth on this. And the picture of the Last Supper like falls off the nail and comes crashing down behind the bed. And he was a little bit more quick-witted than I am because I'm not a quick-witted person. He goes, see, I told you. Well, that struck me in an odd way. And, and, and now looking back, I believe this was a, a, a devil's accusation. Because I was convinced that I had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You know, the only unforgivable sin. Because I was holding on to a position that I was wrong with. And, you know, we're, we're charismatic, so those things tend to have, like, extra meanings to them, right? <laughs> you know... 15, 16 years old, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, so like for the next week, I'm like freaking out, like just totally convinced that I have just given away my salvation and praying to the Lord, Lord, please, no, you know, because I didn't know. Uh, and so that leads me into the next stage, which they call the mentor. Usually in your journey, you'll come across a mentor who understands the ways of God. And for me, that mentor's name was Monty. And I remember sharing this concern with him, like that following weekend, saying, man, I'm, I'm really worried that I blaspheme the Holy Spirit because of this. And he looks at me without a beat. I was like, no, no, you didn't. Because if you'd blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't care. Man, wiser words have never been spoken for a situation like that. And I've understood that from here on out, that if, if I really were to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, my heart would have been so hard that I wouldn't have given a second thought to it. And understanding that helped me understand it's the heart of God, the character of God, so much more. So I had this this wise sage, right? This Obi-Wan figure, this Gandalf figure, this Morpheus figure, if you watch The Matrix, right? There's somebody that's gone down the road a little bit further and can help you on your journey, can speak wisdom, can speak uh, 
experience into your life. And so Monty was the one that was, was one of the ones present the first time I ever spoke in tongues. He was the one that took me on my very first Christian concert. He's the one that became a voice of faith and reason for me in these very, very young formative years uh, as a teenager. And then as I grow, right, I go into university, I go uh, do my studies there. And after I'm wrapping up the university, uh, we, I start moving into what's called the second threshold. Uh, now, I had started out as a pharmacy major. I was going to go study pharmacy, become a pharmacist. A couple of years into it, had a change of heart and switched over to history. So I was studying history, and I thought, well, if I'm going to do any serious studies in history, then I need to learn Latin and German and French and all this other stuff. So I thought, okay, well, let me get started. Latin. So I started taking Latin in college. Got a year into Latin, and I was at a church service on a Wednesday night. I remember it was a Wednesday evening service. And uh, the pastor at the time was also the drummer for the church, so he's, like, playing the drums. And then stops the worship band and says, all right, I can count on one hand the amount of times I've, I've gotten like a, a word of knowledge or something for somebody. It's like, and this is one of those times. Stopped everything, pointed me out, had all of the elders come pray over me. I was, clearly was not expecting this, not knowing what to think about it. Like I just cried in my pew because I didn't know what was going on. And they didn't tell me anything. They just prayed. And then went back to the service and saw me. Like, what was that all about? <laughs> you know? And so, so later on, you know, like, I'm, I'm with this pastor at the Dairy Queen. And uh, we're sitting there. He stopped the service. And he had all the elders lay hands on me. And I had no idea what that was all about. What's going on? And he goes, I can't tell you all the details. Which, which lets you know that they, they, they got something. But they're not free to tell you. I mean, Kara could tell you about that. Oh, I, I got this powerful word. It's just threw me on the ground when I got it, I'll give you one sentence. And that's basically what happened. I can't tell you all the details, but uh, you're going uh, to be in ministry. Okay. All right. Don't know what that looks like. Don't know what that's going to be. Put it in the back, back of my mind and uh, let God deal with it as he wants. Right? So I go back to my history studies, doing my Latin. But then as that year ends, I get to thinking, okay, if I am going to be in ministry, I might not even be a pastor. I might just be an elder. Um, in a church, but it would be good to know my theology, right? So let's kind of tilt my mind towards possible religious education, right? So then I start studying classical Greek in addition to Latin, which was probably one of the toughest years of my studying because, you know, Greek's not too uh, easy and uh, neither is Latin. So, so anyway, being the unaware overachiever that I am, Ended up with two majors instead of one. So I double majored coming out of my bachelor's degree and also being unaware that my grades were high enough to be in the honors, so I forgot to go ask for my honors robes because I didn't know anything. You know, first generation college kid, I just plow through. Ended up in seminary. That's how I ended up up here in Lake County because I went to Trinity for seminary, which is what I call my second threshold. Now, the second threshold is another significant decision that you have to make. Um, it can be, depending on the life experience, more treacherous or more unnerving than the first experience. What could be more unnerving than, than your mom passing away? And it seems like really anticlimactic now that I think about it. 
But the second major decision was to move up here at 23 years old. First time out of my dad's house. First time with no support network. 300 miles away from anybody I knew. I didn't know anybody up here. I had no contact points whatsoever. Just decided to pack up and move up here. So that was a major threshold. And, you know, like the, the pastor that had prayed over me, he's a very wise man, right? I told him about this. I'm going to go to seminary. He's like, well, do you have, uh, you know, a, a place to stay lined up? No. Do you have any contact points up there? No. Like, do you have anything planned? Do you have a job lined up? No. And, like, in that meeting, he told me after the fact, he's like, I was about to say, Todd, you need to get a few ducks in a row before you move up there. And right as I was getting ready to, the, to say that, the Holy Spirit said, shut your mouth. I was like, oh, man. Like, I didn't know that, right, at the time. I was just like, hey, I'm going. Had a little Chevy S10, rented a little 5 by 7 U-Haul trailer, packed everything up in it. Drove up over Fourth of July weekend in 2003. <laughs> uh, I had uh, three friends that came with me who ended up bickering the whole time. <laughs> and they were so frustrated with each other that some of them were threatening to just get a bus ticket to go back home so they didn't have to ride in the car together. So a little unnerving, leaving my entire comfort zone area, no support group whatsoever, for a venture that I had no preparation for because I thought that God was calling me to this, right? So I come up here, we move in, we get everything unpacked, they leave that Saturday, and I just sit in my apartment as soon as they drove away, and I cried for five minutes. And I said, all right, Todd, you gotta get your stuff together, you gotta unpack, because class starts on Monday. So I unpacked, and then I started studying biblical Greek, which is actually a lot easier than classical Greek, Trust me, I know. And uh, got through uh, classical Greek, or biblical Greek, in uh, the course of a summer. So, yay, right? So that was my threshold. I moved up here, and that began this new challenge. I won't get into a lot of the details, because I, I tend to over-explain this, but moving up here was a culture shock. I mean, think about foothills of Kentucky, Front porch, sweet tea, hot and muggy, everybody's blue-collar working class, trying to make ends meet. That's typically not the people you meet in graduate-level classes. You usually meet middle to upper middle class who have a history of family education. They know the routine. They know the culture. I had a huge culture shock, not to mention you guys are familiar with the northern suburbs, right? Yeah. Like, so that's just a whole different culture all in and of itself. Suffice it to say, I'll make one statement to let you know what I thought. We went to the Dominic's when it was still in business, just down the road from Trinity, and the first car we saw in the parking lot was a brand new bright orange Lamborghini. <laughs> I had an S10 with paint falling off the truck. <laughs> Where did I end up? Like, what is God's sense of humor in this, right? So there's my threshold. I'm at Trinity, just plowing through, doing my stuff. And once again, after the fact, because I just don't know, right? I just put my hand to the plow and do my stuff. 
that I find out, you know, I finished Trinity in three years, and everybody thought that that was the most incredible feat because it usually takes most people four years to get through this degree. Am I really that much of an overachiever? Like, I just, I just I'm just laid back, simple dude, do my thing. And then all of a sudden, people are like, wow, you really did that? Yeah. Okay, so, so I went to Trinity, three years. So then we have this next stage in our life that they would call the moment of despair. Side note, there's probably going to be a lot of these in life. It's not just going to be one defining moment, but there's these moments of despair. Uh, we're confronted by a major obstacle. Uh, our future begins to look dim. And it seems like the adventure is going to come to a sad conclusion ended in failure. All hope feels lost. And it's during these times that we have to call out for that divine assistance. We have to call on the Lord because there's nothing in our own strength that we could do to make this succeed. So two, two of those moments for me be one, raising the money to fund my internship in South America. Because, you know, I'm not from an upper middle class family, so we don't have $4,000 lying around just to drop on a plane ticket in a hotel room in South America. So I sent out support letters, prayed to the Lord, never heard anything. It was like three weeks from planned departure date. And I went to the, the professor who was uh, heading up the trip for the internship, and I said, I don't know if I can go on this. Like, I don't know if the, the funding is going to be available. And, and the time frames and stuff. So he, he walks me from department to department at Trinity and basically contends for me. He goes, okay, let's go to the business office and say, do we have a record of any of the money that's come in for the support? Right? So he, so that, yeah, we'll get that to you. He goes over to the dean of students. He's like, he might not be able to, to get his paperwork in in time. It's like, okay, well, we can push off uh, his internship paperwork deadline till December. I mean, like, Things start falling into place, right? And, and at, at this moment of the despair, I, I don't, like, there's no money. Like, I'm on my knees. My, my roommate and I are just praying to the Lord. Like, Lord, we need your hand to come through on this. We need your provision. And it was at the point, like, that I was, I was praying to the Lord, and I said, please, let me know what you want. Because... If you want me to go on this internship in South America, you're going to have to make a way. If for some reason, this was my prayer, if for some reason you want this whole thing to crash and burn and I fail, fine, I trust you. And uh, that's where we left it. I mean, like I was thinking like I could sell my computer maybe for $1,000. I could probably sell my truck for $500, maybe just buy another one when I get back. You know, I was just thinking of like things that I could unload to bring some money in. And then when the business office got back to me, all those support letters I had sent out covered like 90% of the trip. And then I was able to take a little bit, you know, that I did have in savings and do this trip and, and go down to South America and do my internship and then come back, finish up the paperwork and got my degree. So there's that moment where like everything that I'd put my, my time and effort into in these last three years was in danger of being destroyed, not reaching that final goal, and I needed divine help, and, and the Lord came through for it. So that was a physical moment of despair. And I'll give a quick one on spiritual moment 
uh, like an emotional moment of despair, is when I had this great idea because there's a lot of things that I do that I just don't really know the dynamics of. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a pathfinder in the family. Nobody's ever done this stuff. I'm the first one to go out of the country. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to do a solo missionary trip to the Czech Republic, mm -hmm. right? Czechy Republika. Yeah, and uh, so I actually worked two jobs to save up enough money to fund my own trip to Central Europe. So I didn't even raise support or anything. And I go over into the Czech Republic and basically bounce from church to church all over the country for three months. Foreigner in a foreign land. I knew enough of the language to find the bathroom, to find something to drink, to find some food, and to buy a train ticket. That's all the check that I knew. And so I go over there. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this. And half the churches I went to, they just didn't even know how to deal with a missionary. They were village churches. They're like, oh, an American's here. Hey, come share your testimony. I mean, that's like I did everything like sharing a testimony to doing like meeting with the elders and devising like a, a plan to do outreach to going out in people's, like the church's garden and like pulling the weeds out of the garden to make the flowers pretty. I mean, like I, everything. That drained me emotionally. So it was a, it was a, it was a roughly a four and a half week, a four and a half. Uh, it was a three month trip. About two and a half months into it, I just I couldn't do any more. Like everything was busted. I was drained, and there were times I was just like in my room on a carpet crying because I didn't see what the Lord was doing, and I just I felt like everything I was doing was useless, right? So there's this emotional despair that I just didn't even have enough emotional energy to do a week in the Ukraine to, to do missions. I just, I said, no, I can't. I, I just hold up in a hostel for the last two weeks and just recuperated. It was a really, really tough time. And then when I came back, like, I had to heal from that. It took about a year just to recover emotionally from that. So there was that, that moment of the despair, and I had to call out to the Lord. And his breakthrough on that came when I was back stateside, in my apartment alone, praying and meditating on the Lord in the living room, because nobody else was in the house. And I had what I would call my Isaiah 6 experience. This is when Isaiah has that vision of coming in to the Holy of Holies and the angels are all around and the Lord is on his throne and the train of his garment reaches across the threshold and the Lord says, who will go and speak the word? Like, who will go proclaim to my people? And the way I see that passage is that Isaiah is sitting there in the presence of holy angels in the presence of the living God. And here he is, a fallen human being who is impure and imperfect and by all intents and purposes, the unholiest thing in that room in contact with the holy God. And, we, and I know from studying the scriptures that any time that an unholy thing comes in contact with the holy God, the immediate response is judgment. So I can only imagine that Isaiah has this experience and goes through what could best be known as an existential crisis. 
that at some point, only God's grace is preventing him from just being blown to smithereens in God's presence. And that's what I like in my experience, too. In prayer, on that carpet, trying to heal, trying to call out for God's presence. I mean, like quivering and feeling in that presence like the outer layer of my skin is just dissolving off of me. You know, and that's, at that point, like, I, I, I was holding my tongue. I wasn't crying out. But I believe it's at a moment like that where Isaiah cries out, Woe is me! I am an unclean man among unclean people. Because he just feels like he's coming apart. And he feels his uncleanness in the presence of this perfect purity. And that's when the angel comes and puts that hot coal on his mouth. So that, that, that is the, the, the end of that moment of despair for me. Is that I'm in God's presence and I'm just, it just feels like, like part of my molecules are just dissolving off of me. And the Lord's presence is there. And there are other experiences that go with that that... We're getting pretty late on time, so I'm going to... But those moments of despair are moments that we push through because of the power of God, because of the Holy Spirit inside of us that brings us through to victory in an otherwise impossible situation. And then those moments of despair, as we push through that, lead us into stage eight, uh, what, what he calls the ultimate treasure. Now, after overcoming the thresholds, after going through the moments of despair, there is the prize. But more valuable than the prize, we find, is that personal transformation. Now, you can talk about your prize being finding the love of your life, having children, finding that job that you're looking for. And all of those, I mean, like, those were all realities in my life. Graduating seminary, when I looked like everything was going to crash and burn, right at, like, like the... Right to the finish line, who's going to crash? Finding a fellowship of like-minded believers in the Barclays group. Because I was in a, in a barren wasteland spiritually after seminary. I just, I, everybody was like stodgy, evangelical, no Holy Spirit stuff. Like no church I went to was able to feel that. So when I came to the Barclays for that first time, it was like a breath of fresh air. It's like, ah, oh, my people. You know, because that's what I grew up with. That was my normal. And to have, I mean, it's almost like, like going into, uh, like waking up, missing your right arm, right? Like something's missing. Something's not right here. You know, and so I came like, oh, oh, there is the right arm. It's good. Spirit. Spirit-filled. Um, ultimate treasures and the joys of, of planning the church and treasures of, of meeting Shannon and getting married with her. I mean, like, these are fantastic treasures. And yet the most valuable thing in all of this is how God has forged me and made me who I am today through all of that and because of all of that. That, to me, is really the ultimate treasure, is how God is transforming us, as we see in scriptures, into his likeness more and more, right? From glory to glory to glory. We're becoming more and more like the God who loves us. And so going through, you have the ultimate treasure, that transformation moves into the next stage, homeward bound. It's time to go back to an extent to the world that we came out of, to deal with whatever issues are left unresolved at this stage in the journey. 
Because there, there are times we'll do all of that, and then there's, there's unfinished business that the Lord tells us to go back and take care of. And at this point, we've got the character, we've got the strength, we've got the experience to go back and take care of the unfinished business. Could be an estranged relationship, could be um, a burned bridge that shouldn't have been burned. When we talk about inner healing, just a little side note, the biggest majority, in my opinion, the vast majority of the subject matter for inner healing is bitterness and unforgiveness. Yeah. Like that's 90% of inner healing. If you got those things taken care of, your inner healing, you're like you're done. You don't, you don't really need a ton more inner healing. The rest is just transformation into God's character and character building. So in this homeward bound journey, you're mature enough to deal with that bitterness, to deal with that unforgiveness, and to get that out in the open. And so you have to deal with whatever issues are unresolved, working on your character. As I grew in the Lord, I was able to start discerning things in the old world that were bad versus things that were kind of neutral. Like for me now, watching, I don't know, The Lion King isn't really necessarily like a gateway to Satan, right? Where watching certain horror movies really would be. So knowing that difference, you know? So yeah, I did have that year of consecration where I wouldn't watch an R-rated movie. Well, what about The Passion of the Christ? Because that's an R-rated movie. So if that was the rule, sorry, I can't watch this uh, accurate representation of the crucifixion. So you start learning, you know, that Corinthian passage, that all things are permissible for me, but not all things are beneficial. So there's this level of maturity and discernment to know, like, oh, yeah, this isn't, like, all Jesus all the time content. But it could still be edifying, right? And knowing what that difference is. And, and those lines are going to be drawn a little bit different for each person. And, and having the understanding and the maturity to recognize that in other people and not expecting them to live by the lines that you draw for yourself. Those are steps for maturity. So over the years, I've worked on re removing unhealthy behaviors that I've been made aware of. I mean, like bad eating habits. I mean, I used to eat a, a box of pasta for a meal. Just pasta and pasta sauce. That's like two pounds of pasta. Like, not really the healthiest lifestyle, right? You know, I, I'm still a little on the big side, but... Uh, Man, I've been eating a whole lot better since I got married. I tell you that, and it's not because of like the cooking; it's because of the decisions to make healthy decisions, right? right. So, yeah, like, so I've I've had to work through that. I've had to work through like some of the challenging things that that young men challenge themselves with, you know, and and have difficulty, especially with unrestricted internet access, right? Thank God that's never been a thorn in my side, and the Lord just said, "Do do away, okay, get away." working through that, you know, bad TV habits, right? So sitting up late at night watching TV and then missing sleep and being less productive at work. That's a character issue, right? And so we work on that. We grow as we work on those things, those unhealthy actions. We learn to mitigate those. And then also being aware that my actions affect more than just me. Yeah. That I could be very frustrated and just go off on a rant I could do that right here in the church if I wanted. 
how many people of you would be negatively affected because your pastor goes on a rant? Right? So my actions are going to have direct consequences to people. Same thing at home. If I went off on a rant, like what are the kids going to see? What are they going to learn through my actions? Right? And being aware of how my actions and my, my attitude is going to affect other people. And working on that in myself, not just for me, also for those that are around me, my spheres of influence. And so we do this homeward bound journey where we come back to living a pretty integrated everyday life as a holy person in an unholy world, right? And learning how to navigate that in the way that spreads the gospel the best, in a way that, as, as Paul says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. You know, in a way that, that Paul exhorts us to let everything that you say be seasoned with grace, yeah. right? And so how that affects the fallen world that we live in and the fallen people that we interact with. And that leads us to the very final step, and that is the step of rebirth or the return. And usually on, on the return journey, and, and once again, there's should be pl plenty of these in our life as we grow, we're far more equipped to deal with the challenges. There might be a final threshold, a, a final like, challenge that we have to deal with as we start establishing a new normal in our life. Could be more difficult than our, mo our moments of despair previously. It, it gives us one last test to solidify our character. So our experiences of reality are different because we've been through all of this. We've trusted the Lord. We're no longer just an innocent child or, or an ignorant person seeking excitement. We're comfortable in who we are. And we can operate out of the way God's made us, and now we can handle these new demands and these new challenges. So uh, some, of the, some of the examples for that, for me, I'm far more equipped to rightly divide the word of truth. If somebody says, well, the Greek says this, I'd be like, give me a few minutes to look at that. And then I could say, no, it really doesn't. Because a lot of people know just enough Greek to get themselves in trouble. And they almost use Greek and Hebrew as a way to shut down any ability for somebody to criticize their opinion. And so if you know the Greek and the Hebrew, and they, if somebody were to tell me that... I don't know, for example, oh, now I can't even have an example. <laughs> that, uh, okay, so uh, the Greek word prototokos, which means firstborn. We see in Colossians, right, that Jesus is the firstborn among many. If they, if they, if they were just to say, well, well Jesus is, is the, the firstborn physically, right, so he gets the, the brunt of the spoils of uh, the inheritance because he's the firstborn, in a sense, that's true, but also in a sense, prototokos in the ancient world, it's, it's a title, it's a position. It's not so much birth order, but as a position being raised up to the level of firstborn. It's a little bit different dynamic in how that plays out. Okay, that's as far as I'm going to go with that because I'm not going to geek out on Greek for you guys. So far more equipped to deal with the word of truth. So when somebody comes in and says an untruth or uses a Bible text out of character or uses a phrase, you know, that, that's not kosher with the scriptures, 
I'm quite a bit more equipped now to say, no, sorry, that's wrong, than I was, say, when I was 23. There's a growth. And so there are new challenges that come with that, right? You get a guest speaker that comes in here, and they might say something that's a little bit off. Wouldn't you want somebody to say, yeah, sorry, that's a little bit off, right? Or do you want a bunch of people here at the church that don't know how to tell that that's off, and then all of a sudden people are believing stuff that's not true? Anyway, capable of discerning the thoughts that are Christ-centered thoughts and anti-Christ-centered thoughts, and being able to address that. You know, in, in, in ministry, you know, like even when we just have a conversation, if somebody spouts off a philosophy that's not Christian and they say it's Christian, just to be able to say, no, that's, that's not honoring to the Lord, right? And, or attitudes. Also being enough, uh, involved with enough demonic interactions to be comfortable running points with it. When I was a teenager, my very first encounter with a demonically oppressed person was at that little Pentecostal church. And like we're all, we just all went up to pray and... And as you probably heard me say before, like back in those days, I was often a, a self-designated catcher. So when people fall down, I'd be the one behind them to catch them. And uh, there was a lady named Sister Carol that was about this tall, about this big. And uh, I ended up being the catcher. <laughs> and it was like a little bit of a work to, to ease her down. But then we're, we're, we're down praying, and then all of a sudden she starts growling. I've never experienced it before. You know, I'm 16 years old. There's this person just writhing on the floor, growling. Like I get this, like like a sharp pain right here in my stomach. That was like, oh, this is not holy, right? Well, the, everybody else picked up on it, and so they were able to do the deliverance. So I was just kind of there as like prayer support. But uh, as I've grown, like people have asked me to come into houses and clean the houses because there's like a demonic presence and stuff. Actually, Cal and I just did one uh, recently, and uh, we found that there were, there were two demons in the house. And uh, I think I ran point on that one, right, Cal? Like, Cal does a lot of the inner healing, but, but in this instance, I was, I was running point, and I was just fine with it, you know? Like, big change from, like, being just a little bit freaked out with this, like, I don't know what's going on here, to, all right, I'm going to stand right in your face and say, you get out of here. Right? So there's a growth that happens in this. And then I'll, 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 I'll end it with this final example. There's a, there's a time in ministry where, like, in charismatic arenas, usually when there's a wild service, and I've seen this, and, and most of you would know, it's typically due because there's, there's at least one personality type who acts as a catalyst for it. So there's typically one person that's a catalyst that kind of like starts the fire, right? And I've seen that be fantastic and amazing, and I've also seen it be very dangerous and detrimental based on like the character and the motives of the catalyst. And so we've, we've actually had instances where there have been what I would call a dubious catalyst, where they would, they would spark a, a movement in the service, and it wasn't always holy. But because they're a catalyst, they get more attention than most people. And because they get more attention, they have a lot more influence. Because they're like, oh, this guy walks into power, and so people want to be able to like, be a part of that because it's exciting and it's juicy. You know? Hey, we're charismatic. We like that juicy stuff. And I, like, there was an instance where we had a, a dubious catalyst and like realizing that like, a big part of the group was being swayed 
Yeah, I went to the Lord because I was given enough discernment to know, like, this needs to be taken care of. What are the people responding to? They're responding to these moves of power. So I, I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, I, I see this going off the rails really quick. And I see that the wise people are losing influence so that a lot of people could end up being deceived in the midst of this. So I remember praying, Lord, give me an increase of power to reestablish credibility so that your word can go forth and these people can be led into righteousness. Like I'm not opposed to a crazy service where people are on the floor speaking in tongues. I want it to be a God thing. I don't want it to be a man thing. And so being through this journey, having these experiences, everything from the knife flying across the room to demons at the foot of my bed to casting evil spirits out of people's houses to being speaking in tongues and not knowing what's going on, over the last 30, almost 30 years, the Lord has led me to this moment to lead this church in the ways of righteousness, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the knowledge of the Word of God. So, as one of the pastors here at the gathering place, most of you know this, many of you might not. I have a master's degree in seminary. I've studied Greek and Hebrew. I've done international missions in the Czech Republic and in South America. I have helped cast out demons. I have cast out demons. I've ran point on running out demons. I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, given what I would call the gift of the tongues of men, because I'm pretty decent at like learning a little bit of language, you know, just enough to get by, but enough to build rapport with people. Like I've helped Cal with inner healing ministries. Like you, you don't have, in 2003, I came up here, I would consider myself a country bumpkin. Not fully educated, not fully aware of stuff. 30 years later, I'm not the same man. I'm the man that God has made to be in this position at this time to meet the challenges that we're in. And we have an amazing group of elders. We have an amazing uh, group of speakers here. We have an amazing uh, set of pastors here who all have one thing in their heart, and that is to pursue the kingdom of God to their best abilities and to lead this church into that. And so I have every confidence in our leadership team to fulfill that mission and hear what our orders for headquarters are and to cast that vision and implement that here in the church. So that's my testimony from Pastor Todd. First time you guys have heard that in probably five years. And uh, thank you guys. Thank you for letting me be your pastor. So with that, uh, I'll go ahead and wrap us up in prayer. If you guys need prayer for anything, we have our prayer team. They'll be up here. We also have our, our prayer um, list. If you can't get a hold of them, if somebody else is available on the list. But uh, I'm just going to wrap us up. And if you guys need prayer, great. If you need fellowship, you know, that's what we're here for for a bit. And then you guys can figure out your lunch plans. So dear Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. And thank you for calling each and every one of us to who we're supposed to be. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use this testimony as an encouragement as a challenge, Lord, as a way to speak to the hearts of your people at the gathering place so that they would be inspired to draw closer to you, to know more of who you are,
to mirror your character, to mirror your image wherever they go. So Holy Spirit, I pray that your presence goes with each and every one of us as we go out this week into this world to bring your presence, your love, and your power. We do that all in the name of your glorious Son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Hello again. This is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you are blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of the Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. God bless you and have a great week.